0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, the epistle reading for the next, well, I think if you include this week, the next 15 weeks is from Romans in continuous fashion. So guess what I'm going to be preaching on for the next 15 weeks in continuous fashion. Romans. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why you should be excited about that. And I'm going to borrow some wisdom from the fathers of our Lutheran tradition. This is from Dr. Luther himself. He says, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It's like the opposite of every stick of gum you've ever chewed, right? They lose their flavor. It just gets boring. You know, you spit that thing out. Romans is the opposite, according to Luther. The more you chew the cud of Romans, the better it gets. And that's the beginning of his preface to the book of Romans. And normally Luther's prefaces to these New Testament books were like a few paragraphs long, maybe even a few pages, but his preface to Romans is 15 pages long. In fact, Luther spends more time on his introduction to chapter seven of Romans than he does for the entire book of Ephesians. He ends his preface like this. Therefore, it appears that St. Paul wanted in this one epistle to sum up briefly the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine and to prepare an introduction to the entire Old Testament. I guess for you, it'd be this way, right? Old Testament, old, new. For without doubt, whoever has this epistle well in his heart has with him the light and power of the Old Testament. Therefore, let every Christian be familiar with it and exercise himself in it continually. To this end, may God give his grace. Amen. And the occasion for the letter, like why why did St. Paul write Romans? What was going on? Um, That explains why Romans is such a comprehensive treatment of the gospel. And another important figure in early Lutheranism, Johann Gerhard says this, the occasion for its writing was this. There were at Rome, both Jews and Gentiles who had been converted to Christ. The Jews were taking for themselves a sort of prerogative because of the divine covenant and their circumcision, urging the ceremonies of the law and seeking to be justified partly by faith in Christ and partly by their works, right? They're God's chosen people. They're going to follow the law given to Moses, We can't throw that away. That's still got to be part of how this all works, right? In their mind, at least. The Gentiles, on the other hand, with high arrogance, held the Jews in contempt as if God had rejected them. Also, many of them were using their freedom under the gospel as license for the flesh. God is going to forgive me anyway. I can get away with this one more time. The apostle, therefore, wished to advise both groups with this epistle. Okay, so that's why Romans is a big deal. I think Romans is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel, because if you had the gospels and Romans, I think you'd be pretty well off to understanding all of Christian doctrine. Now, we actually start in Romans four, which is kind of unfortunate. So real quick, in the next three minutes, I think um, you're going to become experts in Romans one, two, and three. Okay, here's how this will work. We're just going to briefly summarize this. So here's what's happened so far when we join the story in Romans 4. The good news about Jesus Christ is that God makes us all, Jews and Gentiles, right in his sight, not by works, but by faith. That's a major theme. Paul comes right out of the gate in Romans 1 with that. He says in in chapter 1, verse 17, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Also in Romans 1 is this idea that we need to be made right with God because our sin has stirred up God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And Paul isn't talking about the Democrats or the Republicans, or conservatives, or liberals. He's talking about all of us there. God's judgment for sin is coming, especially on those who see sin everywhere, but in their own heart. And his kindness in delaying Judgment Day is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not meant for us to just presume on his kindness and keep sinning, because we can always come up and get communion on the first or second Sunday of each month, and on the fourth Sunday of a five-Sunday month, right, at St. Peter's. No, God's kindness, His delaying of judgment day is meant to lead all people everywhere to give them time to repent, not to abuse His grace. Romans 2 16 says, This is the message that I proclaim. The day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. Olivia's really excited about that. <laughs> the day is coming. When God, through Jesus Christ, is going to judge your secret life. The life that's just between you and you, me, myself, and I. Romans 3, okay, that sounds like, oh, right? But there's law and there's gospel. Okay, so there's good news coming. In Romans 3, Paul argues that the Jews do enjoy enjoy a sort of special privilege or a special advantage because historically they are God's chosen people. God did choose the genetic uh, family that came from Abraham and not both of Abraham's sons, but just the son of the promise, Isaac, who is the father of Jacob, who was renamed Israel, who had the 12 sons and they went to Egypt, the whole thing, right, the nation of Israel, comes from a people that God chose for himself. So the Jews do have this kind of special advantage because they have the word of God. They had the Old Testament scriptures that was revealed to them. However, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, including the Jews. And all are saved through faith in Christ Jesus. So Jews can't claim any kind of special relationship with God through obeying the law that they were given through Moses. Romans 3, 29 and 30 says this, After all, is God the God of the Jews only? No. Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. So, now we're caught up to Romans 4. And really in Romans 4, we're learning from Abraham. And we're learning about the gospel from Father Abraham. You know this song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. You know this? Thank you. Okay, well, for those of you who don't know it, um, we'll learn it together uh, after the service. Because um, I believe I just did a little pirouette in the pulpit. and. I'm feeling kind of embarrassed about that now. All right. At the core of Abraham's special relationship with God is this. Way back from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, Yahweh. Remember? All capitalized Lord stands in for Yahweh. Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh counted him as righteous because of his faith. God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and to his descendants isn't for those who obey the law because then faith wouldn't be necessary, right? You wouldn't have to anchor your life in anything outside of yourself. You wouldn't have to anchor your life in things outside of what you can do something about. You wouldn't need faith if the promise was just for those who could receive it by doing something, by obeying the law. There's no belief or there's no trust and no hope necessary. Then the second reason That the promise isn't for those who obey the law is because then the promise would be pointless, right? What does God need to give you if you can just attain blessing by being a decent enough person? And thirdly, the law can't be obeyed by anyone anyway. It always brings punishment on those who try to obey it, not because the law is tricky and evil, but because we have sin in our hearts. So then this promise of God is received by faith, not by obedience. It's received by faith. And all who have faith like Abraham will receive God's promise, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. So I guess then the the most important question for us is what does it mean to have faith like Abraham? If you got to believe like Abraham did in order to receive the promise, how did Abraham believe? Well, Abraham believed that God brings the dead back to life. From our reading from Romans this morning, verse 19, Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as what? Dead. And so was Sarah. So was Sarah's womb. Abraham believed that God creates new things out of nothing. God had promised Abraham. In fact, he renamed Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. All the peoples who would come from Abraham did not exist when God renamed Abram father of a great multitude. Right? God called into being something that did not exist. He said, You're gonna be the father of of descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, or more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach, Abraham. And that was a long way off, generations, centuries off. But Abraham believed that God calls things that are not into existence. So let's put the pieces together. Yahweh shows up to Abraham in Genesis 15, he promises uncountable descendants to a person who has no offspring. And who is like a hundred years old? How is this going to happen? Abraham believes Yahweh. Abraham doesn't do anything. There's no, there's no working. There's no doing. There's no obedience to any law. There's just naked faith on the part of Abraham. And Yahweh counts Abraham as righteous because of this faith. Paul says to the church in Romans four thirteen through 25, our sermon text for this morning, This is not a thing peculiar to Abraham. This is the way Yahweh, our God, works with us. In fact, Paul even goes so far as to say the story of Abraham was recorded for our benefit as believers in the Lord Jesus, that we would have assurance that God is going to deal with us in the same way, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous, that God will look over our sins, that he's going to remember them no more if we believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus was given up to death for what? Our sins. And Paul says in Romans that he was raised to life to make us right with God. Friends, this is how the gospel is received. Through belief that God does what he says. You might say, there's no forgiveness for me. I've proven that I cannot give up this particular sin. I keep messing up. I can't break the chains of this thing in my life. I can't get out of this rut. You might say, I've sinned in so many different ways. There's no hope that I could be made right with God. You might say... I've racked up quite a debt and I need to pay that down. I gotta make things right with the Lord. You might say, I try to stay on the right side of moral issues and I'm a pretty good person, right? I, th- I think actually I'm all right with God. And if you say any of those things, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because Jesus was given over to die for our sins. So, no, you're not all right with God. The only son of God had to die because of you. You can't be right with God by being kind of a good person. The testimony of scripture is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And Jesus was raised to life to make us right with God. So there's no room here for any doing on our part. We can't make it right, but God says that it has been made right through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So all of your sins, the things that you might be thinking about right now, From this past week, from years ago, it was all priced in at the cross and at the resurrection. There's no like, oh man, there's this extra thing now that like, I don't know if Jesus died for this. I don't know if this counted. It was all paid for. So here's the core thing you need to settle, friends, as we bring this to a close. Was Jesus given over to die for your sins? I see one person nodding. The rest of you can nod or blink a few times too. Was Jesus given over to die for your sins? Yes. And was Jesus raised from the dead for you? Then you're made right with God. It's done. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see any more sins that he's got to deal with. There's no more, you know, conversations. Oh, we got to, you know, um, God is never going to say to us, um, we need to talk. You know, sometimes you get a text, uh, you got 10 minutes or like, we need to talk. Let's get coffee or whatever. Or send an email. Um, there's something on my mind. No, it's all paid for. God just looks at you with delight because you believe that his son died in your place and you believe that he was raised from the dead for your justification. You believe God and it's counted to you as righteousness, just like it was for Father Abraham. Your sins are not too heinous or shameful. Your attempts to make things right are not sufficient, but it's okay. Because it's not up to you to get right with God. There's no doing required of you. This righteousness isn't your wages, but it's the gift of God to you. Now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as the good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.